Pull yourself up a chair and join us at the Energy Roundtable. Welcome to another edition of the Energy Roundtable. And uh, let's dive in. Lisa Katz, uh, my uh, partner in crime on these, welcome. Thank you, Matt. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. You? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you. You're, uh, you're, you're dressed for the cooler weather, it looks like. Well, actually, it's because we had our carpets cleaned yesterday, so all of our uh, our windows on the upper floor are, are opened, and I was okay. <laughs> freezing, actually, because it's getting pretty cold outside, so, yeah. <laughs> well, let's heat, sing, heat things up with our first article. We'll jump right in. Last last time we were together, we were talking about the, uh, we spoke specifically about the federal uh, policies for energy here in Canada. And we'll pivot back to our normal routine of, of trading um, trading articles. And uh, so I'll start with an article out of um, a uh, an engineering school that I never uh, would even think about going to, aside from as a tourist, MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology. They have uh, a news website, uh, news.mit.edu, and it's all the news about their campus and I guess their students and their uh, alumni and things of that nature. And so this this announcement, which is two days old, um, talks about a major breakthrough they had in um, uh, kind of moving towards fusion energy. So right now, when we talk about nuclear energy, we talk about nuclear fission, which is basically taking an atom and splitting it apart. Um, and and the the release of that nuclear energy that binds the the uh, the center of that atom together. But that release, then it, it has a uh, cascading uh, ripple of chain reaction, and that releases massive amounts of energy. Um, but fusion, different than fission, nuclear fusion is the exact opposite. So it's it's taking two small atoms, fusing them together, um, and making a larger atom. And and you know all of us experience that every day, believe it or not, through the uh, the sun. So the sun is basically nuclear fusion. It's taking um, molecules of hydrogen. Uh, there we are. How, how quickly are we in? <laughs> uh, but turning hydrogen into helium at temperatures of millions of degrees. And so the key, though, because it happens at such high temperatures, is how can you ever contain that? You know, you're talking, the article talks about how, um, yeah, it's literally 100 million degrees is you need to be able to capture and contain that. So obviously, you know, your your Tim Hortons coffee cup is not going to hold that kind of reaction, nor is any really high octane metal. And so the breakthrough is they're working on this very high powered, um, you know, magnetic field and through high temperature superconductors, they've been able to really make this magnetic field. And so the thinking is that they will hold this fusion reaction in this magnetic field uh, and that way it's kind of suspended in space like you see on the, on the movies and it's not touching anything and then they can um, they can hold it in space and they can do the nuclear fusion reaction. So they talk about having this project, the, the actual, now that they've had this massive breakthrough, which has been the barrier, uh, by 2025 they want to have a nuclear uh, fusion kind of demonstration project um, live. So, you know, go check it out, news.mit.edu, it's about fusion, but um, very, very interesting. N- not something that's you know gonna be in our world in the next ten years, but uh, very exciting uh, news out of MIT this week. So interest, I'm interested to find out, Matt. Like when we talk about the TRL level or the technology ready- readiness level, like where roughly is this technology at? I've heard a little bit about it. Actually, you know who really is is quite fond of this? Uh, Bill, our engineering oh. manager. Yes. He was talking to me about it a little bit, and um, Ronnie, our co-op student, is also like 
he's he's really passionate about it. And I knew nothing about it. So Bill kind of briefed me a little bit and you've actually okay. just rebriefed me. So this is good. But where does it sit on the scale? Like when we're talking about that one to nine, is it kind of in the in a range of like a four or five at this point? No, 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 no. We're 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 still trying to get this. I mean, we kind of know the science. We the royal we know the science. We know that that's what happens in the sun. But uh, I think I, I don't know the 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 scale very well. But we're probably in the one to three range. I mean, it's, oh, okay, okay. But but the but the upside. And the moonshot, and that's relevant for my later article, but the, the moonshot here is the, 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 this is a game changer in terms of energy. Like, you know, huh. it, I, I, I don't know the numbers, but it's like 10, 20, 20 X of what nuclear fission is. Like it's, it's massive. If you can get that, uh, the fusion of those two uh, atoms into a larger atom, the energy release is massive. And so that's mm -hmm. why, yes, it's early on the stage, but if we can get there, you know, we're not we're not talking about storage anymore. We're not talking about you know we're it it's over at that point. So wow. uh, maybe it's maybe it's the holy grail. We'll never get there. But this is an exciting step forward. Cool, that's awesome. So I have uh, two articles that I'm sort of lumping into one. I, st I have a third to you know okay. so not limiting to these two. Uh, but just because they were so related and there was a couple of kind of tips in both of them that I thought I would share. So it's a little bit different than what I've covered in the past. Um, the first one is called is from the Toronto Star. It's called "Don't Let Sustainability Eat Into Your Budget," mm -hmm. and the second one is a blog. It's from a blog post, and it's called uh, the blog is called "To Taste a Culinary Nutrition Experience." And essentially, what both of these the, the reason that they're linked is they're talking about the impact of food on the environment. Oh. And I kind of wanted to cover it because it's a little bit different than what we've normally been doing, and you know, it kind of. Um, it allows us individually to think about how to reduce our carbon footprint, you know, in our own households. Um, so, cause, cause obviously yes, industrial GHGs and, you know, other uh, GHG sources are very important and it, you know, certainly a, uh, you know, a big uh, has, has a lot to do with climate, but if we can do things on our own, that would be great too. So basically what they're, what the article articles are sort of talking about is um, there's a couple of points and it's about all about kind of creating different habits so one is do your research um, because most people are so far removed from, you know, food and the way that our food is produced. And, you know, and that makes it really difficult for us to make informed decisions. So, there, you know, there's a lot of buzzwords that are going around. We hear local, natural, organic, and that's have sort of become you know, a catch all phrase. So really do your research to understand where your food is coming from. And that will start to you know, create those informed decisions. Um, another tip was to reprioritize your budget. So um, many people, I, I'm not one of them, but many people, um, they don't think about what they want to necessarily eat for the week, right? They kind of go to the grocery store every day and, um, you know, maybe pick some some stuff up, but they're not necessarily thinking about what they want to eat in advance. And sometimes that can lead to be, you know, to poor choices. It can lead to purchasing too much because maybe you go in and your, you know, eyes are bigger than your stomach <laughs> and, and you can't finish what you've purchased. Or, you know, maybe you're eating out more often and that's not necessarily very sustainable long term as well. So it's all this this point is about decreasing waste and decreasing meat consumption and cooking at home. And, um, you know, doing research on things such as maybe looking at food replacements. So if you're thinking about cow's milk, there's many milk replacements out there like uh, oat beverage or soy beverage. 
So looking at individual food items and thinking about how you can be more sustainable, changing one of them and then, you know, adapting uh, that or moving on to the next product. Another point was to look for local food programs. I kind of like this one because I was affected with by this uh, only two weeks ago. Um, but, you know, the, the benefits are decreasing transportation costs and avoiding waste from food that spoils. So that's kind of the direct personal link because I have four pears, four pears sitting in my fruit basket that I purchased four, uh, sorry, two weeks ago, and they have not ripened. Oh. At all. I've tried the brown bag trick. I've tried everything. And so. Put them on bananas? Uh, I did put them on bananas, actually. Yeah. Didn't work. Wow. No, it didn't work. So where are they going to go? They're going to go in my compost bin, my green bin, right? And so, but again, it's waste doesn't lead to sustainable practices. So obviously, if you're buying local, it means you have to also think about, you know, the time of year and the foods that, you know, typically uh, are available at that time of year. And then the second article is, again, listing some other uh, tips. One of them that has already been kind of mentioned, uh, but eat more plants and less meat. So I looked up some facts here just because I, you know, wanted to back some things up this here. Is, so. This is going to cut deep. I can feel it. But keep <laughs> no, it's not. It's not. But you'll. But anyways, I'll just explain it a little bit. So interestingly enough, cattle are the number one agricultural source of GHGs worldwide. Many people do know that. Uh, I did not know that one cow will belch about 220 pounds of methane per year. And methane, of course, is shorter lived than CO2. Um, but methane has 28 times more um, potent or, or is 20 10, 28 more times more potent in warming the atmosphere. And the big concern here is really what, you know, the population and our population size as we grow to 2050, which is expected to reach nearly 10 billion. So I will say that I am not a vegan and I'm not a vegetarian. Um, I, I cannot go there because I do like meat and I yep. like eggs. Um, but we at home have started to reduce the mm. consumption of red meat for two reasons. You know, the first one is it's, you know, supposedly not very good to be eating, uh, you know, copious amounts of red meat, you know, from a dietary perspective, but also because of the climate piece. Um, so that's kind of an interesting thing. Uh, reduce consumption of highly processed foods. Be picky with seafood, which a lot of us might not be thinking about. Um, but fish farming, for example, can be one way to reduce overfishing of the oceans Buy local, buy in season, buy in bulk, um, make your own food when you can, reduce food waste, reduce, reuse, repurpose. And I love the last one, compost. Um, so for some of those, some of us, it might be like I had in my backyard when I was growing up as a kid, where you bring out the compost to the actual compost yep. bin, or alternatively, use your green bins, which of course I love because so many more municipalities are creating, of course, RNG from that compost or that green bin material which of course uh, benefits our own business at CEM. So keep yes. that up, guys. So those are that's that's that article. Well, it's I mean it's it's great and it's it's important. I, I'm glad you brought it up because it it broadens our thinking beyond just energy consumption at at point of use and it, it takes a more holistic and um yeah the whole the whole meat thing is such a like as you know I'm not a big animal person I I, I believe animals belong on my plate. Um, but I do, but to that point, I love to eat red meat and I grew up working in a butcher shop. And so, you know, I, I do the meal planning and I'm thinking through, okay, I start with the meat and I'm like, okay, what's this meal's meat going to be in this one and this one. And every meal has meat and it's like, that maybe isn't needed. Right. And, 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 you know, the, the GHG profile is, uh, now there, there, apparently there are some algae kind of supplements that, that they're working through that will, 
uh, greatly reduce the belching of cows. Um, so, you know, that that may help us as well. But uh, yeah, it's a, that's a great uh, observation that you make and a great challenge uh, to all of us to be thinking about that. So uh, did you what, what was the uh, Toronto Star you said was the was the article? Yeah, it was from Toronto Star. And the uh, the blog post was uh, let me just get the name again. It's to taste a culture, uh, a culinary nutrition experience. OK, cool. Well, I'm going to go from local kind of, uh, you know, we can we can do it um, uh, ourselves to something that's much bigger than that all of us and, and talk. It's not really an article, but I want to highlight um, something that the Department of Energy is doing in the U.S. And so as part of uh, Biden's, you know, climate policy and things like that, they're they're doing what they're calling a hydrogen shot. And so. I mentioned the moonshot earlier, of course, you know, Kennedy Kennedy in the early 60s says we're losing to the Russians. We're going to put a man on the moon by 69, doesn't live to see it, but they actually do it. And then so this moonshot becomes kind of this this rallying cry for for Americans in a bunch of different ways. And so they, they have done a solar shot where as an industry, they said Department of Energy wants to be at the center of this, but they wanted to get the price of an installed uh, kilowatt or megawatt down to like a dollar a, a watt or something really really low. and they and they got there and and they did you know supply chain it was uh, innovation it was a whole bunch of different things that they got there and so now they've launched this hydrogen shot and so they're they're using this kind of one 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 uh, catchphrase which basically is by the end of the decade um, so it's basically they want to get hydrogen to a dollar. A dollar for one kilogram in one decade. So one, one, one. So that's the the focus is this whole initiative. So I was I was part of this uh, event last Tuesday, I think it was, and so the the first speaker was the, the the current Secretary of Energy. The next speaker was John Kerry, the Special Climate Envoy. Then there was this software guy, uh, Bill Gates, uh, spoke, and then um, the Executive Director of the Hydrogen Council, Daryl Wilson. So like really banner people in this industry and in broader industries. And then, you know, really got into the nuts and bolts. And so now we talk about this hydrogen rainbow because it's not just green and blue and gray. There's pink, there's yellow, there's all these different. It's just, you know, it's fascinating. And so if we can get to by 2030, 2031, a dollar uh, per one kilogram and then in one decade, that's exciting. So I uh, encourage it. So this is a combination of funding and trying to find hydrogen clusters and all this stuff that's coming out of this in the U.S., uh, but some pretty aggressive targets and and they're they're going to move the needle. So so want to stay close to that. It's the hydrogen shot by the DOE. So cool very stuff. interesting. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because, uh, well, I've been, I was preparing for energy news, uh, which, of course, Mark and I do every Friday, and then it comes out on Monday. Um, so for those of you that are, uh, want to tune into that, it will come out on Monday morning, typically, by about uh, 11 o'clock or so. But uh, Caterpillar, of course, has just recently announced that they are running their, or have uh, made-to-order engines, reciprocating engines, that can run on 100% hydrogen. We know that 2G and others, of course, you know, have the ability to do that as well. Uh, solar turbines have been able to do it, um, I don't think necessarily up to 100%, but a certain blend anyways yep. for many, many years. So, and, and part of the reason that Caterpillar was so eager to do this with their reciprocating engines, they mentioned in their article, their news release, is because they really do think that hydrogen is a way, a path forward, you know, moving uh, moving forward to reduce um, you know, climate emissions and so on. So, yeah, interesting. If we can reduce the cost of the fuel, um, there's just so many more possibilities. It's a big deal. Yep. Yep. You got one more? 
I have one more. Um, so the next one is also from the Toronto Star. Um, this one, can, can, I guess, is uh, closer to home. New show generates life into Niagara Power Station. Uh, so a little bit different than what I would also normally cover, but uh, wanted to just highlight the Niagara region. And uh, and for those of you that might be traveling this fall to the area, you might want to check out this uh, new immersive sound and light show that's bringing the Niagara Parks power station alive at night to the public. Um, so with the use of projection mapping, laser lights, reactive technology, and a project-specific musical score, the project, which is called Currents Niagara's Power Transformed, tells the local story of hydroelectric power from its beginning to today. It's a 30-minute show, and it takes place inside the 116-year-old power station, which is along Niagara Parkway in Niagara Falls. And um, basically, it's it was it's quite interesting. It was built in 1905. Um, as Niagara uh, Power Generating Station, the facility is the only fully intact, decommissioned hydroelectric plant of its period left in the world. Mm. Um, so that's quite interesting. And um, there will be a phase two of the project that will be added to the attraction. It's expected to open next summer, and it will provide visitors access to the underground infrastructure of the power station with a glass elevator taking visitors 55 meters below the generator floor to explore the 610 meter long tail race tunnel that empties at the base of the falls. So for wow. those of you that, you know, have young children want to kind of, you know, show and explain to them what hydropower is and how that works. And I, I mean, I haven't been there myself, but certainly uh, intend to visit with my family. I think it just, it sounds great. And um, again, it's relevant to our industry. So I thought I would bring it up. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. And, and, uh, I'm just you, you had me at glass elevator like you know you got you got hydroelectric power and Willy Wonka all in the same spot right so yeah, yeah. Um, you know it's that and that site apparently used to generate at 25 hertz not oh, our conventional okay. 60 hertz and and there was one site in Niagara and there was one site in Hamilton so there was a there was a transmission line that went all the way from Niagara to Hamilton and it was 25 hertz for the longest time now they've replaced that infrastructure but um, yeah, the whole, I mean, you talk about a history of power in, uh, in Ontario, it all starts there. Um, and, uh, that's great. So, so there is a phase now you can go see it and then they're expanding it next year. That's correct. Yep. Cool. Very good. Well, thank you, Lisa. Um, you're, you're broadening our, uh, our, our <laughs> view here and this is, this is always helpful. Uh, let's continue to broaden the view and the table and we will invite our uh, content creator extraordinaire, Mr. Mark Charbonneau. Welcome, Mark. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. How Hello are you? There, Mark. Good, good. You're ready for our uh, face-off this week? Yes. Um, as you know, if you're new to watching this segment, uh, face-off is we pick a topic. Um, what, Regardless to your personal views, you uh, are forced to argue pro or for or against said topic. Um, and I, today's topic is um, unions. We just celebrated Labor Day, September 6th, so I thought it was uh, fitting for that. So um, pros and cons of unions. And uh, Matt, I think, is your call for the coin toss this week. So you can call. A couple, a couple points of clarity. One for the listeners. They should sure. know Lisa, Lisa always prepares and I never prepare. Um, <laughs> so that's why Lisa usually wins. Uh, second of all, point of clarity to the moderator. Union, we're talking labor union, not not a union of two spouses, as an example. Like correct, that. correct. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that, that uh, yeah, call last. So I'll, uh, I'll call uh, Tails. Okay. I was going to say that one could be a whole separate uh, face-off. Yeah. <laughs> um, what did you say you called? Sorry? I called Tails. 
It is tails. I don't know if you can see that yet. There we go. I would like to be against labor unions. Okay. And would you like to start? No, I would like Lisa to start. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. okay. He's. I know what he's trying to do now. He's going to use some of my points and just spin them. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so well, I have. Mah- I have my pros Mah- list Muhammad here. Ali called that rope a dope. <laughs> That's yeah, right. That's true. I have my pros list right here, so I'll go through it. So, uh, the first one is probably provide protection to workers. Um, so in so so for example, in many cases, an employer who wishes to fire an employee needs to actually go through a specific arbitration and grievance procedure. So it's a little bit harder to actually get rid of employees that, you know, an employer might not really want to keep anymore. Uh, Unions are um, economic trendsetters. Um, So before unions, weekends and provisions for workers didn't really exist. Uh, Other examples that I I researched um, that uh, include minimum wage and OSHA guidelines uh, and overtime rules. So again, great to you know set some of those trends and, and look out for the worker at the same time. Um, unions often promote um, higher wages and better benefits. Again, always looking out for the uh, for the uh, employee, the worker. And uh, the last point that I have is unions are able to amplify and advance uh, political causes um, the working class generally speaking supports. Those are my pros. Hmm. Just uh, before we start, can you guys tell me what year it is? <laughs> so u- unions unions had a place, uh, in my view. Unions had a place uh, in like the 1900s when you know children and you know um, people who should not have been in the work or or you know the working environments were unsafe uh, or you know it was just just criminal. Um, and so yes, this collective you know, union and, but unfortunately that has morphed into a world where if you are in a union and, 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 you know, this is very biased and and probably in some ways not right, but the point is to be a little bit kind of over the top on this. And so like, we're at a point now where you are, you are untouchable uh, for all intents and purposes, if you are in a union. And, uh, and so regardless of your performance, you know, regardless of how effective you are at your job uh, to, to Lisa's point, you have, there is this process uh, and that's great, but um, you know that, that that unfortunately puts the benefit towards the union, not the employer, and the employer is stuck with potentially you know employees who who aren't up to stuff. Um, you know, the unions I think you know have this this they're not cheap. You know, they, they have a cost uh, to to run a union, and uh, and so they have to have always higher wages, and and at some point those higher wages um, provide this framework where that business is no longer sustainable, and so that business is going to go elsewhere and it's going to go to less skilled areas where they can pay lower wages. And, and unfortunately, then, you know, that game of chicken, the union lost that game of chicken. Um, and, it, you know, for, for an employer, it really limits, um, you know, what they can do and their flexibility and the ability to work with a very talented and, and integral part of their business. If that becomes a hostile relationship, they can't work together. And we as as employers, we need our, our team members to be working on the same page. Um, yeah. So I, I think they had a, I think they had a place, but I think now where we have, we have, you know, the Employment Standards Act in in Ontario that's very, very strong, um, and we have OSHA, as Lisa mentioned, we have all that stuff taken care of. Uh, now we got to figure out how to be innovative, how to be efficient, and how to hire the best people, how to keep the best people, how to motivate the best people, and I think unions fly in the face of that. Hmm. I see. I'm, I'm, I'm personally, I'm on the fence for this because I think unions have their place in certain industries. 
Um, but um, like, I don't, I don't know. Do you have a rebuttal, Lisa, or do you, or like, what do you think? Like, uh, well, if, if I start to speak, I might be actually giving Matt the win. <laughs> <laughs> Um, for the sake of this, I would say Matt has, for me, has the more compelling argument, although I do disagree with certain things. And I, and I do think that they do have this, like I said, they serve their purpose and there is value in having a union for certain industries, for sure. Just, um, so just, just, just for fun, because this does put, like I said, this is going to give Matt the win anyways, but, and, and you've given him the win anyway. So it's, keep going, it's fair. Keep <laughs> but, but just a couple of facts. So I didn't look at, I didn't know this, but I was you know researching it this morning. So. Typical deductions when you're a union member are in the range of about 1.5 to 2.5%. So what's really interesting about that is if you're going from a non-unionized environment to a unionized environment, that additional pay that you might be getting is actually reduced because you have to pay those union fees, right? The other thing that I did not know, which was kind of interesting for me anyways, personally, was if you want to apply for a unionized position. Now, not all of these are the same because there's open and closed unions, and I've never worked in a unionized environment, so I, again, had to do a little bit of research. But in many cases, the candidate actually has to be a union member. Now, mm. some make exceptions to the rule, and they'll still allow the candidate to interview. But, of course, if the candidate goes beyond the next step, they have to become a union member. So anyways, I just thought that was interesting. Like I said, that's why I cut my mouth shut until you made your decision, Mark. Yeah. It was going to lean it anyways over to Mark yeah. to Matt's end. Well, I know my wife pays a, a small fortune for her uh, union dues. And it's, uh, you know, it's it's it, it hurts when you see that number. You're like, oh, I mean, it comes with a benefit. But, you know, that's sure. not one of them. <laughs> yeah. uh, good. Well, thank you both. Um, uh, next next time we'll just dis we'll discuss the merits of marital unions. No, <laughs> um, thank you, Mark, for always having a good topic that uh, can provoke discussion. Lisa, thank you for your articles uh, and thank you to our listeners. Uh, and as always, um, you know, if this has brought value to you, uh, please, you know, share it with others. We want to get we're just trying to bring value and bring information to the industry as it evolves and, and, and develops. Uh, and if there are things that we can be talking about, things we can do better, uh, please let us know. Uh, you can write me at Matt, that's with two T's, at C-E-M, Charlie Echo Mary, E-N-G, uh, for engineering.ca, Matt at C-E-M-E-N-G.ca. Thank you, everybody. Have a great and uh, safe uh, weekend, and we will talk again soon. Bye, uh, guys. Bye.